Hello, listeners, and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. I'm Vas Christodoulou, one of the curators at How To Academy and the producer of this series. How can we feel at peace in the face of the unexpected? Our guest on this episode is a pioneering forecaster who believes it's possible to plan for and build a future that we want to see. Jane McGonigal is the Director of Games Research and Development at the Institute for the Future. Regular listeners will have heard Jane in our discussion of the metaverse with David Chalmers a few weeks back, and in this episode she explores her new book, Imaginable, How to See the Future Coming and Be Ready for Anything. It's out now. She sat down with Hannah McInnes to tell us more. What is a futurist? What what do you Mm. do? What do I do? So, well, I do work at the Institute for the Future, which is a nonprofit research and teaching organization. And what we do is we develop forecasts of how the future might be different. We also teach people how to develop their own future forecasts. So, you know, there's not just one future. There are many different futures, the future of food, the future of learning, the future of travel, the future of democracy. And depending on what you're interested in, what you're excited about, we can help you learn how to see what change might be coming and also how to make more transformative change yourself. If you want to be the force of change, the agent of change, not just wake up in someone else's future, but shape the future yourself. We can teach you how to do that. And the way that I like to teach people how to see the future coming and also become agents of change for the future is by designing simulation games where we can imagine that we've already woken up in a world that's very different from today. And we can think about how we might feel, what we might need, how we would adapt or try to help others long before we ever have to actually you know, roll up our sleeves and live through that reality. Mm-hmm. So it's fascinating. And it, I think I, I've, I've heard you say in, in other interviews that you've done that there's a sort of surge in that sort of work at the moment. Mm. Um, is that the case? And, and if so, why is that? And therefore, I suppose, why is that the opportune moment to write this book? Yes. You know, so I do a lot of data crunching and analysis. And one statistic that really captured my attention uh, a couple of years ago was this surge in the language that I was seeing in newspaper headlines and social media. And it turns out that in just the last two years, there have been more than two and a half million English language news stories with the word unimaginable in them, and more than 3 million news stories with the word unthinkable. And I think this really speaks to why there is an increase in interest in in how we can you know anticipate predict prepare for the future because right now we're in a state of collective shock we feel blindsided by what we've lived through we're kind of bracing ourselves for the next unthinkable event or unimaginable change and the good news is there there are tools that we can use there are habits that we can practice mindsets we can develop so that we're not just like white knuckling our way to the future but can feel more confident that we can be ready for anything but and also just more in control of what happens next helping decide what that future will be and, and I mean, if you if we're looking at um, this subject of futures, and just again to kind of get some definitions, why is it important to talk about futures plural and not mm. the future? I love that you picked up on that. <laughs> you know, I think a lot of people have a misconception that futurists try to predict the future, right? And we don't actually want to predict the future because. That means you're just kind of stuck waiting for whatever you think is most likely to happen today, right? What is probable, what's realistic, but but what if the most likely future is a future that you don't want, right? Wouldn't we rather prove ourselves wrong and change what could happen? So when we talk about futures, we're really trying to look at all of the possibilities. And, you know, there are infinite possibilities. So we're not going to look at everything, but we're going to look at the adjacent possibilities based on what's happening now, new technologies, new scientific breakthroughs, new social movements, new policy ideas, behavior changes. What 
our likely possible future is just one step ahead or one year ahead or 10 years ahead. And then we can start to evaluate, you know, which of these futures feel like worlds we want to wake up in, which will be the most fair or the most beautiful or the most fun or the most just, whatever we want the world to be. Let's look at all the possibilities and then think about the actions that we might take today to make the future we want more likely, not just the future we think will happen. Moving on then to the, to the book itself, perhaps you could explain why this title, I mean, you, you gave some ideas at the beginning about this imaginable, but perhaps you could tell us further, um, you know, what, why you chose that and not unimaginable, or yeah. <laughs> imaginable, how to see the future coming and be ready for anything, which, as I said, an optimistic title, but um, perhaps you could sort of explain your reasoning behind that. Yeah. I mean, I, I must admit, I got quite frustrated throughout the course of the year 2020, seeing people describe the pandemic and some of its social consequences as previously unimaginable. Because in fact, one of the first big future forecasting games that I ever developed at the Institute for the Future was a pandemic simulation back in 2008. We had almost 10,000 people spend six weeks on a private social network imagining that we were living through a pandemic. And we were really just looking at every moment in our everyday lives and how they might be affected by a pandemic, work, school, church, dating. And I was, you know, as, as my role as a researcher, I was asking participants, let's say you've been told to isolate at home for two weeks under what circumstances would you not obey? Like you would just go out anyway. And we collected data on this. The number one reason people said they would violate a stay-at-home order or an isolation request was to go to religious worship, right? There was something so important to them about that practice, that community, that they would prioritize it over a public health order. And we collected this kind of data. And of course, during the real pandemic, we had the chance to go back and see what did people say they would do and are they doing it in reality? And all of these things that public experts, epidemiologists, public health groups sort of fail to predict or fail to prepare for were in fact predictable. They were predicted just by ordinary people imagining what they would do, what they would need, how they would act. And so for me, I just feel very fired up. You know, there's, 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 so many examples like that, that we were able to imagine just by talking to real people about what they would feel in need. And it seems like we could do a better job of preparing for whatever might come next by giving ourselves that invitation to imagine possible disruptions, changes before we live through them and give people a chance to really work out what they might feel or do so that we're not surprised by you know, people being driven by emotions instead of, you know, perfect reason or being driven by their values instead of what an expert tells them to do. Mm. And so, you, I mean, you say people who, who, when you sit down to write, or, or would you say that this book is for, is it for everybody mm. to pick up off the shelf? Oh, yes, please. It's for everybody. Um, you know, I teach how to think like a futurist at Stanford in the continuing studies program. So this is just people from all walks of life, recent college grads trying to figure out what's next, people who've retired and they're looking for what to do with the rest of their lives. You know, anybody can learn the tools of future thinking and future imagination. And um I think it's especially important for anybody who might be feeling maybe a little bit too much uncertainty or maybe like not being sure what can I do to, you know, really deal with climate change or issues we're seeing social changes. If you feel overwhelmed or you feel there's too much uncertainty, this is a really good book, a really good practice for you to develop so that you can get more confidence in both, you know, that you won't be surprised but also that you're not powerless, that you can actually do things to shape your own future. And yeah, exactly. You know, it's for people who feel sort of overwhelmed. And we'll, we'll come to that um, lack of control and how you sort of deal with that momentarily. But you talk in the introduction about what makes this book, and, and again, touched on a lot of the reasons, but different to the kind of quite a lot of other books out there about the future or futures you know, and how to approach them. But this has kind of got a lot of differences, but some sort of main things that make this very, very different to those other books, to lots of other books. 
Mm, I mean, the main difference is that I want to teach people to be able to imagine and anticipate the future themselves. Like a lot of books about the future, it's, you know, okay, I'm the futurist. Here's what I see coming. Dun, dun, dun. And you get some interesting ideas, but then you're kind of stuck with it, right? What I want to do and what I've done in the book is just really break down the creative process, all of the different mental strengths and habits that we try to practice to build a futurist mindset um, so that that it's not just me telling you what the future will be. It's actually you learning to investigate those clues and realize your own future forecasts. You know, another thing that I think makes my work different is that I came to becoming a professional futurist with a background of professional game design. And one thing I realized when I started working with the futurist community is that a lot of these forecasts, they sounded very abstract and hard to imagine. You know, we can say the temperature might go up by this many degrees or these kinds of jobs will no longer exist. Like you can sort of hear these abstract facts, but it can be hard to really put yourself at the center of those forecasts and think about what would this mean for me and my family and my community and my hopes and my fears. And I know as a game designer, you know, when you drop somebody into a virtual world, you need to give them a way to look around and discover what is there here for me? What am I called to do? Who could help me? What resources can I collect? What challenges might I have to overcome? And what skills will help me survive in this world? So I just started bringing, you know, all of the things that I would naturally do as a game designer to these future forecasts and these future scenarios so that when people hear these ideas about the future, they're invited to really play with them the same way we would play with a game or play in a virtual world. Be curious, explore, try different strategies, look for allies, create something. And, uh, and, and I, think, I think that's pretty unique, although I hope that after people read the book, they too can design their own scenarios, run their own future simulation games, and, and I won't be such a unique person in the world. Hopefully, there'll be thousands or tens of thousands or millions of people designing their own playable futures. And, and we want to look certainly at kind of how you how we do that. Um, but one of the other sort of you know personal elements of the book are what you your insights from from your story. So it's not you know. It's not difficult to relate to a lot of this or to understand that it's to empathize and see how it comes from a much more personal level than, say, a kind of scientific approach. And you, you talk about some aha moments of your own um, mm. that informed your thinking. And I think it's like really, you know, I think it's really interesting for people to hear those because it helps so much to even if they're not specifically relatable to other people, mm. just to make this whole concept mm, sure. uh, more understandable. Yeah. So, you know, I always say that playing with the future is a way to inform the actions we take today. And even if you're imagining a world 10 years from now, which we often do, we like to think 10 years out, even if you're thinking about something a decade from now, it can change the decisions that you make today. And so we were talking a few moments ago about this pandemic simulation that I ran for the Institute for the Future in 2008. And I always participate in my own games because I want to I wanted to roll up my sleeves, get in there, learn from the experience myself. And the first thing that you do in any of these games is you fill out a profile of yourself, but it's a profile of you 10 years in the future. And so we're inviting you to imagine how your life might be different, maybe how you might intentionally make your life different, you know, your location, might you live somewhere else in the future, how you spend your days, your job, your occupation, your service that might be different 10 years from now. What are you good at? We ask people to write the skills they might have. Maybe you've learned something new or you've gotten better at something in the, in the coming decade. And so when I was filling out my profile for this game, I one of the questions was, who do you live with? And I realized I, I, I had just gotten married. We were not planning to have a family. That was like part of our discussion. Like, do you need kids? No, I don't need kids. Okay, great. We can get married. Um, and then in thinking about the future we were imagining, we were thinking about there might be a pandemic, you know, other, there might be, you know, energy issues. And as we deal with climate change, and as I was thinking ahead to all these challenges, I realized like, I really wanted there to be a child in my future. And I was, I, I wrote down like, oh, I live with my 
seven-year-old daughter and I named her Pepper. I don't know why the name just popped into my head because as I tried to imagine my husband and I sort of living through these times of uncertainty and challenge, I was like, we need a kid for, for it to feel like an adventure, to have the sort of motivation and purpose and discovery. And I got to tell you, that was a real surprise to me because I did not think that that was in my future. I didn't imagine it, but I, I just saw her so vividly. And that started a conversation with my husband. We used to, we would joke, we'd go on hikes and be like, oh, like our daughter Pepper, like, will we ever have her? And it did get us started on that road. And it, it turned out to be quite amazingly helpful that I was imagining becoming a mom so early because it didn't turn out to be an easy process. There was lots of science involved and it was so much effort. And I'm not sure I would have had enough time to really start my family if I hadn't been imagining it so early and in this, like in this space, in this future imagination space where I was kind of free to discover hopes and dreams that I I hadn't really fully realized for myself. And now we have seven-year-old twin daughters, actually, we got got two. So um, I, and I, I, I always look back at that as, as one of the most important turning points in my life even though we were imagining a pandemic, I mean, it, you know, deciding I want to be a mom, it's like, it seems like totally different things, but that's the gift of the future. When you give yourself that time spaciousness to really zoom out and think about what is the life I want to lead, you can have these incredible aha moments. And then the good news is now you've got, you know, 10 years to make it real. And that in and of itself is a gift because we can set higher goals for ourselves. We can, we can strive for bigger change. You know, when you set a new year's resolution, you're trying to change right away. It's a lot of stress. It's a lot of pressure. If you're trying to change over 10 years, that suddenly we can relax and give ourselves, you know, permission to have setbacks or take our time, kind of ease into it. And uh, and so it's not just about changing the world, right? Or preparing ourselves. It can also be about realizing how we ourselves want to change. So I'm sure a lot of people come to you with the sort of opposite to that, which is what we're often told, which is that actually it's better just to live in the moment. Focus on the moment, live for the day, because the future feels, as we've said, mm-hmm. overwhelming, out of our control, and that the real thing we should prioritize is 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 the day and and leave that to, to to fate. And what do you say to that? Because in a way, what you say throughout the book is that the things, the reasons we're told to do that are to sort of, you know, for for mindfulness and to kind of make the most of every moment. But actually, mm-hmm. you say that's what you get from looking to the future. Right. It is. It seems like a paradox that thinking about the future could help us be more mindful, but the kind of insights and realizations and motivation that we can derive from the far future, that's actually what gives us the fuel, (laughs) the energy, the awareness to take actions that really will be meaningful and purposeful to us and our communities in the long run, you know, um, it just as a practical exercise that folks watching now could try that might help them real sort of realize for themselves that connection between imagining the future and taking action today. Um, one thing I like to ask people to do is imagine themselves waking up 10 years from today. And it's easy to imagine waking up tomorrow, right? You could, you could picture what room you're likely to be in, what bed you're likely to be in. If there's somebody who will be in the room with you, an animal, a person. You could probably imagine what mood you'll be in when you wake up, what you're looking forward to or dreading that day. We, we can easily imagine that for tomorrow. Maybe we could even imagine it six months from now, a year out. But when we ask our brain to conjure up waking up 10 years from now, the first thing that happens is our minds go kind of blank, right? Because we don't have information about what our lives, our bodies, our relationships will be like in 10 years. And that's actually an invitation for our brain to decide what it wants to imagine, right? We don't have an agenda, a to-do list for 10 years from now. We can imagine ourselves waking up with a different person or animal in a different mood with a different set of activities on our agenda. And this invitation to imagine 10 years out, I find when people do this, it really helps them 
reprioritize what they're doing today. And as just like a little extra fun thing, I invite people to put something on their calendar for 10 years from today. If you go through this activity and you imagine yourself doing something that's kind of different or fun or interesting to imagine, open up your Apple calendar, open up your Google calendar. If you didn't know, you can go 10 years, 20, 100 years in the future put something on the calendar that you would be excited to wake up for. Even if it doesn't exist, if it's not possible, if it sounds ridiculous, put it on the calendar and invite someone you know, invite your partner, you know, your sister, invite a friend, and just start to create this really vivid and almost tangible reminder of what's possible and, and what we want our life to have more of. And then we can use that as a clue to what we do today. Hello, it's Vass here. One of our all-time favourite guests at How To Academy is back. Yuval Noah Harari's next book tells the story of how information networks have made and unmade our world. Nexus, a brief history of information networks from the Stone Age to AI, is out in September and available to pre-order now. Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, so it is, um, I suppose, very much about changing people's mindsets. And I mean, I'm I'm actually going to jump in straight back to my questions in a moment. But because you're talking about that, which is, I think, links into this person's question, mental health is talked about Mm -hmm. openly now. and, And they say, how can this book help people who have anxiety in the unknown future to to feel more comfortable. And it's, it's part of what you're saying. So I just sort of, um, yeah. rather than that's a, to the end, I'm, I'm just going to put that straight yeah. in. Yeah, that's a perfectly timed question. So one of the things I do in the book is I kind of break down everything that happens in our brain when we try to imagine the future 10 years out. And the reason why I can do that is because there have been tens of thousands of scientific papers published over the last decade about what happens in our brains when we imagine the future. And people often ask me, why do we know so much? Why are neuroscientists studying what happens in the brain when we try to imagine the far future? And the number one reason why there is so much research and science on this is that the ability to vividly imagine the far future, not tomorrow, but five years, 10 years out, is incredibly linked to mental well-being, both in alleviating and reducing symptoms of depression and symptoms of anxiety. And it's because we're training our brain essentially to control our imagination. We're teaching ourselves how to vividly imagine something that is hard to imagine because we don't have a lot of facts about it, a lot of information about it. So we have to create it. And anxiety is essentially a particular kind of failure of imagination. We have a lot of vivid ideas in our mind, but we're getting stuck. We're getting fixated on possibilities that make us anxious, that we worry about, that we'd want to avoid. Learning to imagine the future far out teaches us how to control what our brain sort of gets stuck thinking about and visualizing. And we can start to intentionally imagine things that fill us with courage or motivate us or remind us of our values or the positive actions that we can take to control the outcomes of situations. So that really helps with anxiety. And in terms of depression, what researchers find is that people with depression have a vague sense of imagination, that the regions of the brain that are responsible for vivid mental imagery or vivid simulation, we really picture something in detail, whether it's our memory or the future, they power down. And so what would normally motivate us, right? Being able to picture something we want and going to get it, it doesn't happen. And so we literally We can't imagine something good happening. And so we don't have that energy or that drive or that belief to take action. So training people to visualize more vividly the far future, 
which is harder than imagining the present or the past. So you get better at it faster. This alleviates symptoms of depression. And I mean, it's it's not easy to imagine the far future. It's why the book is like more than just one chapter. You have to learn tools and techniques like looking for signals of change, which are clues to how the future might be different. So you're not just fantasizing, right? There's a difference between just, I don't know, wild fantasy. Oh, in the future, you know, everybody grows tails. Like what, what does that mean? We're just making things up. There are particular skills, habits that you can practice so that what you're imagining is realistic. It's plausible and maybe exciting to you or motivating to you. So um, it's important that you do it in this structured way, this effective way, but at the heart, you're just teaching your brain to control your imagination. And that has such a powerful impact on our mental health. There are so many, as you say, like instructions and, and ways to do it and, and terms that we could go through. And I, we, we, we need longer. But um, just to pick up on some of the you know, really interesting points, positive and shadow imagination. Mm, yeah. Um, yeah. Perhaps you could explain that. You know, you say just know that whatever, wherever you are right now in your outlook or in the future is fine, whether super worried, super optimistic or somewhere in between. Be ready to stretch your imagination in the opposite direction so you can Mm -hmm. hold both hopes and worries in mind at the same time. Right. So what we find in our research at the Institute is that people do tend to have a little bit of a natural inclination or bias towards either being really good at picking up on things we should worry about, risks or threats or disruptions that would be futures that we don't want to wake up in. And other people tend to have a little bit more of an inclination or bias towards seeing the good possibilities, right? Here's what could go right. Here's here's how we could really create transformative change for the better. Um, here's how this technology will lift people out of poverty or, or solve mental health problems. Whichever your natural inclination, it's important that you can look for signals of change that fill in the other side. So if you're, you know, constantly just thinking about what's exciting about the future, you might wind up not being ready for risks that people are warning about, or you might not be thinking through maybe some unintended consequences. How might this change actually increase economic inequality um, or affect different different groups differently. You want to be able to think about unintended harms and consequences. On the other hand, if you're just thinking about what could go wrong, I mean, this is that that's no way to live, right? You really want to be filling your brain with real examples of new technologies, new policy ideas, new social movements, new behaviors that give us authentic reason for hope, real things that are happening today. And holding both of those things in mind is how you wind up actually being ready for anything and feeling good that there are solutions and there are strategies that you can get involved with if you yourself want the future to be better. It's so helpful and so useful. And I think, you know, slowly everything becomes clear as it does through reading your book of kind of how you get to this place that you're explaining. And and, and the other thing that you you talk about is urgent optimism. Mm-hmm. Yes. And yeah. So, I mean, again, they, they, a lot, there's a lot of paradoxes in here because you kind of optimism is not something you necessarily kind of think is forced or, or <laughs> urgent. So yeah. perhaps you can explain that. Yeah. Um, You know, it. so this term urgent optimism, I did coin it and I coined it early in my career as I was starting to see people emerge from these simulations of the future, feeling like super empowered versions of themselves. And it was really surprising at first. It was, as you said, this kind of paradox because, you know, at first I was worried, well, if we ask people to imagine, how would you you know, survive if there were like rolling power outages for the next year and you never know when you're going to have power. Um, maybe that would be difficult to think about, or I mean, certainly not fun, unpleasant, maybe produce anxiety, but instead of people feeling more worried, they were coming out on the other side of these games, just fired up like, wow, I just thought of all these great things I could do, ways I could help. I've like reinforced that I have skills that could really be of service in the future. And so I wanted to come up with a 
a, a phrase or a word that would really capture this weird phenomenon that by really immersing ourselves in, you know, futures that we might say are unthinkable and we don't really want to think about them, that we actually feel better. Um, so I, I did land on that phrase, urgent optimism, because it combines that really that positive and shadow imagination, the shadow side, mm, things we want to be ready for, but the, the positive side of I have skills and abilities and strengths and communities I can rely on, ideas I can draw on or values I can act on that make me feel ready for that or any other future. And um, I've been studying this phenomenon for more than a decade now. What what we know, what I, what I tease out in the book is that there are actually three different psychological strengths that come from practicing certain ways of thinking or ways of learning. Um, shall we go through what those three yeah, strengths yeah. are? Yeah. Um, so the first is mental flexibility, which is the ability to truly believe and accept that literally anything can change even things that have been true for all of human history. And one of the games I like to play with people to really work on this mental strength, this mental flexibility, um, it's called Stump the Futurist. You tell me something you think is yeah. definitely not going to change in the future, and I will go out and find evidence. Not only could it change, it's already starting to change. When I play this um, with, with my students at Stanford, the two facts unchangeable facts that I hear most often are you need genetic material from a man and a woman to make a baby. Even if you're doing IVF or something fancy, you still need like a mom and a dad. Um, and also that humans will always need oxygen to breathe. Well, I'm a futurist. I can go out and find, you know, amazing facts. You couldn't too. Um, you could even literally go to Google and type humans don't need oxygen to breathe and see is anybody working on this? Is this a real phenomenon? In fact, researchers are working on ways to make humans less dependent on oxygen so we can send them to Mars, right? There are actual genetic editing techniques that scientists are working on today so that humans don't need constant oxygen if we're going to go settle another planet or do long, long space journeys. Oxygen is a scarce resource. So already that is happening. Now, even if you don't want to go live on Mars, which I do not, definitely do not want to live on Mars, it's interesting to imagine even living on Earth. What if people don't need to breathe all the time? What is such a change in what's possible for us? Even just to plant that seed in your mind, what would I do if I didn't need oxygen all the time? We can start to imagine different things. I mean, first of all, we could all climb Mount Everest. I think that would be cool. Um, in terms of, of genetic material to make babies, I didn't realize until I started playing this game just how many significant advances there have been in science and technology to help prepare for a world where we can create human life using genetic material from just one person or even just uh, two people of the same gender. So there are researchers right now working on creating human embryos that have genetic material from just two women or just two men. They can be parents. They don't need the opposite sex DNA. This is incredible what it could mean for the future of family, the ability to even potentially become a parent on your own, not combining genetic material. If we don't look for these clues now, I think we could be very surprised waking up in a world where we suddenly realize this is possible. But looking for these clues now, it helps us unstick our brains, get better at realizing that literally anything could change. And that mental flexibility just helps us be more creative and prepared for disruption. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I, can I just ask, I'm sure many people, listen, it, it's, it's true. We can accept that um, lots of things can change and um, it, it makes you feel empowered. But the thing that checks that is the fact that that's not within our control. And so many things, I mean, the things you've just um, mentioned are sort of man-made advances, but we have to look to powers that be. So we have to look to experts, to scientists. And in other scenarios, we have to look to nature. Um, you know, they are changeable, but we feel helpless or that they're not within our control as individuals. Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, you've skipped ahead to the third uh, psychological strength in urgent optimism. I will say the second strength is this balance of imagination, this positive and shadow imagination. Yeah. So you have realistic hope. We talked about that already. Um, the third strength is, is your sense of future power. 
Are you able to list things that you could do today to actually shape how the future turns out? Because you're right. It's all very well and good to feel like change is happening. Good change, bad change. Like, okay, I'm ready for anything. Um, But what can you do to really impact the world that we live in and to help yourself and help others? Um, So there's all sorts of techniques in the book for coming up with ideas for actions you can take today or skills you can learn or develop to be ready to really make a difference. And I mean, I think people would be surprised when you, the first step is you just make a list of all the things you're good at or interested in or excited about, or that you value more than other people. And then you just start to look for connections between those skills and values and passions and the future that you're looking at. One future topic that I got involved in that I had no right to be involved in. I'm just like an ordinary person. But I got interested in planetary defense, right? So it turns out there are all these scientists working to figure out how to better anticipate objects that might strike the Earth, asteroids, comets, and try to prepare ourselves to either move quickly out of harm's way if we need to, or actually deflect them so that they don't impact the Earth. And I just started paying attention to this field, trying to figure out how could I connect my skills, my interests, and abilities So, Because I want to be somebody who helps defend the planet, even though I'm not a NASA scientist. Um, And one of the skills on my list is uh, I think I'm pretty good at communicating science. Like if if, if there's a new scientific article, I can read it. I can figure out what the main points are. And I could explain it to my mom, to like people on Twitter. Um, I can kind of break it down. And I realized that, you know, there might be a lot of misinformation about asteroid science in the future. I mean, we're actually already starting to see this sort of percolate now because NASA scientists were just able to accurately predict um, something that was going to fall in, I believe it was in Greenland. And they're like, wow, we're getting really good at predicting it. Um, How are people going to use this new world of science and data? Will they use it to create harm or hysteria? Will there be conspiracy theories about asteroids? I mean, One thing this world needs is people who can communicate the science and help people be more informed, less susceptible to misinformation or fear mongering. And so that's something that I'm preparing myself to do. You might have a different skill or different interest. It's all about finding those creative connections. And I'm telling you, I have never, ever in my entire career worked with anybody who could not come up with a way to help in a future scenario or to take some kind of action to change the course of a future they cared about. It's just the systematic method of knowing what you're good at, knowing what you care about. And then you can create those connections, those insights where you realize that there is a, there is a place for you. You are called to do something important in this future. Are you sure you didn't write the screenplay for don't look up? <laughs> I, I, I know it's, it's uh it's very timely. I mean, people are people are in the mood for this now. I think we 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 need this. We need to have this conversation. <laughs> I kept thinking that through the book. She must have had something to do. And we've got some um, brilliant. I mean, as always, I, I shouldn't be surprised. Our uh, audience questions are always really fantastic and some great ones. And I love this first one. Um, April says, "What is the most annoying question you're regularly asked about the future and tech?" And what's something you hate being made to about? <laughs> well, I mean, lately it's the metaverse. People asking about the metaverse as if it hasn't existed for decades. You know, people ask what the metaverse will be like. And I'm, well, you, you can already experience it. The metaverse is already Fortnite or Roblox or Pokemon Go. I mean, we already are, we already seeing these incredibly immersive virtual worlds where we can, we can have altered experiences of reality. Um, and I think that, I guess I get annoyed by questions that make it seem like, you know, suddenly we're going to wake up and there's only going to be one metaverse. You know, there's not just one internet, right? Think about all of the websites and all of the communities and all of the apps and games and services that connect to it. For me, uh, I want to make sure we keep our minds open and we experiment and we play. And it's not about getting ready for the one metaverse. We should be inventing you know, thousands of metaverses and then exploring, you know, what are the best practices, the best economic ideas, the best social ideas, the best artistic visions. So um, yeah, I get annoyed when people talk about the metaverse, there's going to be a lot of metaverses and we're all going to get to help create our own versions. 
we haven't talked much about you know gaming i suppose i mean and what you're trying to move away from which is the quite negative connotations that surround gaming and obviously t- towards the positive but um a- along with that uh, and an, an, a question from the audience is how has being a woman also influenced your perspective on gaming and future tech um especially after gamergate and the kind of macho rhetoric around around gaming for example yeah it's very interesting i had started to segue my sort of professional practice from the game development industry to futures practice by the time Gamergate happened. So I was not as immediately affected by that. But I will tell you that I have found that my natural my natural inclination for how to do futures work has seemed very unconventional in a field that historically was dominated by men. In that I first of all, instead of trying to predict a single future, I I do trust that individuals can be experts on their own futures, and I would rather ask people what they would do than to tell them, you know, what they should do or be ready to do. I think futures work has often been prescriptive. It said, you know, get ready, this is coming, or if we don't do this, we're screwed. I tend to be more sort of open to people generating their own futures and bringing more of a sort of, I think, a personal quality to it, you know, thinking more about the feelings we might have as we change or prepare for change and the the values that might drive us that are, that go beyond, I don't know, making more money or becoming more powerful, which has historically been a lot of futures work has been about getting this competitive advantage, whether it's in business or geopolitics. And I'm really just thinking about how do we feel today and how do we transform anxiety and depression into hope and agency? And I I think Futures hasn't always explored that whole range of emotions. And I don't know if that's because I'm a woman um, and, you know, we grow up reading more about psychology and reading more about relationships. Um, It's not necessarily because I'm a woman, but my experience was such that that was that was new in a lot of ways, and I think um, I think that that's something we'll hopefully see more of. Hello, it's Vas here, recommending you a new book from our friends at Firm Press. This May, the author of the Argonauts and other genre-defying, unclassifiable modern classics, Maggie Nelson, is back with a new collection of essays. It's called Like Love. The collection celebrates art, artists, and thinkers, including Prince. Bjork, Sarah Lucas, and Judith Butler. Like Love is available to pre-order now in hardback, ebook, and audio. We we talked about the kind of powerlessness in the face of of governments and and us being generally feeling often useless or or like what we do can't make a difference. This is a similar question but goes into a little bit more um, in, in detail. Bell says. You talk about feeling powerlessness to change the future. Isn't that a political thing, as I sort of mentioned? But she goes on to say, don't politicians and corporations want us to feel as though we can't change the status quo? I mean, it it is certainly true that people who have a vested interest in the status quo do not want us to get all excited and urgently optimistic about the change we can make. But I have, you know, I I have another sort of complimentary book I like to recommend alongside my book, Imaginable. Um, A complimentary book, uh, Hope in the Dark by Rebecca Solnit, who's a historian and activist. And a lot of my games draw on her framework of looking back at just how much has changed so that we can remind ourselves Yes, it is hard work. Yes, we need to organize. Yes, we need to advocate for ourselves. We, we need to do stuff. But dramatic change is possible. And the thing, you know, we just lived through the most disruptive event in human history. I don't think and you could argue that anything has ever disrupted more lives and more organizations at the same time than the pandemic. And we saw how much we can change and how fast we could change in our own lives, in our families, in our neighborhoods, our communities, our schools, our workplaces, our borders, our governments, our economies. I mean, this is not the time to feel like change is impossible. We literally just proved to ourselves that fast change, huge change, global change is possible. And we can hold 
leaders accountable for that. We can say we saw what's possible and we can put our you know, foot on the pedal and say, we need to keep changing, but this time not in reaction to a crisis, but intentionally and purposefully. And, you know, it is something that I, of course, grapple with change doesn't happen fast enough or doesn't happen exactly as I want. But the more that we do this in community with others, the louder we can amplify our hopes and our voices. It's why I always say that future thinking is a community practice, right? The more people who share a vision for the future, the more possible, the more plausible it becomes. And and we can create change and we can change people's you know, beliefs and what we, what we're willing to try. So, you know, I do have a lot of optimism in the end of imaginable. I have three scenarios that describe large scale systemic collective action to create a truly, you know, clean energy, sustainable, climate secure, amazing, awesome, abundant future. Because I do think it's important that we have stories we can tell about how do we get from today to the world we want. And hopefully as people read the book, they too will be able to create their own visions that become, become motivation and evidence to others that, you know, there are worlds we can achieve. And, and then we share those and it creates demand for change. It creates that social movement we need for people who are empowered to respond to. You, you mentioned it there, really, but you talk about it in the book as what you describe. I've, I'm, people may have heard it before, post-traumatic growth. Mm. Um, and that's what you sort of advocate is something that we should take use from the pandemic. Right. So there is a phenomenon that many people experience after a traumatic event, which is that in working through that suffering, trying to make meaning of what happened and and how they how they lived it and how they got through it that in that meaning making we often discover new strengths that we didn't realize we had or a new appreciation for others who have helped us or or gone through it with us we experience more clarity about what we want to do with our time on this earth and historically pandemics have created both a lot of trauma and documented in the scientific literature, post-traumatic growth, that pandemics have been an opportunity for people to realize their strengths and appreciate others and and get clarity on what they want to do. And this is arguably the moment where we could collectively experience, you know, collective post-traumatic growth and not just change our lives, but, but change society. And it's one of the reasons why I'm looking forward to the next decade. This, this is a hard time we're living through. And I think many of us will use it as a springboard to, to do things that matter and make changes in our lives and in society that, that matter. And so I, I'm excited for the future for that reason. Many of us have a, a blind spot about looking to the future. Many people are reluctant to look to the future because of society's um, narrative around just around getting old. So we can look to the future yeah. up into a certain age. And yes. then when you get to a certain age, it's terrifying and you don't want to imagine any day older than you already are. So, you know, I'll stay right where I am. Thank you. Yeah, it's I mean, it's it's true. Um, and even my own parents reading this book, they would told me like, oh, Jane, we, we were they're reading it together um, at night. They're reading it aloud to each other. And they said, ah, at first we were having a little bit of difficulty with it because you're asking us to imagine 10 years out. And like, I mean, you know, my parents are older. My dad's like, I'm probably going to be dead in 10 years. My mom's like, I'm going to be in a wheelchair. I don't know. I can't imagine. I'll go blind. And also, I suppose the same applies to those who are ill. Yes. It's, it's, you know, I, I never want to prescribe to anybody how they should feel or what they should think. I will, maybe I'll just tell a story that I, it's not in the book. I had it in the book and then I, I wasn't able to contact the person to, to get her permission to, to share it in the book. So I'll just sort of abstract it a bit, but I had a student at Stanford who was taking the course and she came up to me, she was like in tears at the end of one of the classes. And she said she was taking the course because her mom had stage five cancer and she was just hoping maybe there would be something in the class. Like she could learn about a scientific breakthrough or some technology that maybe could help her mom. She was hoping she would hear like essentially good news about the future of cancer treatment. And she said what, what was happening instead was all of these possible futures she was learning about in the class, you know, what might be possible 
10 years from now, what the world might be like, she was using that to like essentially pre-live the future with her mom. And if her mom isn't here in 10 years, that she will still be able to feel like they had an experience of that time together, even if it was an act of shared imagination. And she said it was bringing her just this incredible comfort to know essentially that her mom would still be with her in 10 years because they imagined it together because they, they felt like they were able to see it coming before it happened. And so, you know, I think the gifts of the future are often many and surprising and we might avoid engaging with the future, but, but we can learn tools and strategies and these, these creative habits and these acts of, of powerful imagination that, that we, we really can surprise ourselves with the comfort they bring us or the motivation or the joy. So it is real that we, we, especially as we age, it can be harder to think 10 years out, but there, there are still benefits and gifts um, to stretching our imagination, at least as far as we feel comfortable. If you only want to go two years or three years, that can be good too. You know, stretch as far as you feel you can still imagine a life that you want to wake up in. Really interesting. And um, another question. Well, very quick question, practical one. Do you have short courses we can sign up to? Someone says, sounds so fun. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, there is a five course specialization on Coursera. Um, so that's uh that's an option. We also have a public membership program at the Institute for the Future where we have a scenario club. Once a month, we meet up, we play with the future scenario, we talk about what we would do in this future. We go on signals of change scavenger hunts where we collect these signals of hope that, that fill our and fuel our positive imagination. Um, so that community is called Urgent Optimists. The URL is on the book jacket um, if you need to remember it. And so, you know, right. Right now, we've got about a thousand people sharing signals of hope, and um, there are some courses in this community as well um, that that extend the lessons in the book. So, yeah, there, get involved, keep going, read the book, take the classes, join the community. There's a lot of support. Do you do that on social media? Is there a way of following that? Well, I mean, you can certainly follow the Institute for the Future on social media. Uh, that's at IFTF, and you can get you you can get updates on on all of the the games we're playing and the conversations we're having. I'm going straight to do that as soon as we finish. Um, another question. There was a book called Consciously Creating Circumstances based on visualizing your future and what steps to take to get there. Oh, uh, it isn't quite predicting the future of mankind, but does it fit in with what you were advocating? You may not be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there are a lot of similarities between learning visualization techniques that can motivate us, inspire us, and help us come up with better strategies to get what we want. What makes future imagination a little bit different and what the skill that I teach in the book that is not typically taught in other books about visualization is that you need to be putting ideas in your brain that help you more realistically imagine how things might be different, right? If you're not paying attention to these signals of change, these future forces or drivers of change that are likely to impact what our lives are like, then what you're imagining, it's it's a little bit too much like fiction. It's a little bit too much like fantasy. And it's much more helpful if you're really paying attention to the new technologies, the new science, the new social, all this stuff becomes fuel for your imagination so that it's more effective and more grounded in what's possible. And um, so it there is visualization involved, but there's also a very systematic approach to making sure that what we envision is is possible it's realistic and that we we can find the ways to achieve it and um, probably time for one more question maybe maybe another uh, Cameron says what's the event you're most afraid about in the future uh, or the next big crisis that we're not preparing for apart from climate the climate crisis yes so I'm not afraid of this event personally because I think it will potentially inspire us to make changes that need to happen. But the the change or disruption that I'm telling everybody to get ready for in the same way that I was really telling people to start getting ready for this kind of pandemic 10, 12 years ago, are mass climate migration events. Um, I think we have time now to prepare to help people 
move safely and equitably with economic support, with social support to places that are a little more climate secure. All the experts, you know, anticipate that there will be some areas on this planet that are less livable than they used to be. And so we may just need to help people move. We ourselves may need to be ready to move. I live in California where we have insane wildfire seasons now and we live with smoke in the air. And, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about how we can change that, but I'm also thinking about where might I be able to live if I decide to move my family, start a new family legacy. So I think we have time, but we should talk to friends and family and our communities. We should think about possible long-term changes to borders and immigration and and what kind of world we want to live in. Um, Do we want to recognize the human right to move more freely on this planet? Everything else moves freely, information, money, products and goods, but people, people are not free to move. And so that's a crisis we will definitely need to be thinking about. And I personally am excited that I think the need to move will, it will precipitate maybe thinking more flexibly and creatively about allowing people to move on this planet a little more freely than we do today. Um, okay, time for one more question. I think that the biggest change will be the way we think of um, the way we treat animals. I wonder mm. if we'll ever have animals, you know, in the future, whether they'll look back and just think it's extraordinary that we treated, um, treated animals the way the way we do now. But that's another um, point. David says, what's one tip or mindset from the book that you feel would make the world a better place if we all followed it? What is the biggest... Um... Well, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a trick again. And I have to say, you know, I, I do have, I specialize in trying to confront risks or threats that we're worried about and transforming that worry or anxiety into hope or action or agency. And so I always say, if you're worried about a particular future, the way to transform that emotion is to ask yourself, who is one person I could help? in this future? What is one thing I could do that would help somebody else, you know, experience a little less pain or suffering or feel safer, more secure or more loved or more comforted. And what we find is that when you zoom in really small, you know, thinking about, well, you know, what if there is a mass climate migration event? How can I make sure that I'm prepared to help my daughter or to help the school that's in my neighborhood? By taking that focus and and putting it into a kind of a service mindset or helping mindset, it is the the fastest way to feel less anxious. And people are so surprised when they try it. So I always say, you know, it's it's, it's almost like a Buddhist philosophy. It's like you want to change the world, but you have to start by helping one person, right? And so if we can narrow our focus, if we're all focused on that one person that we can help, at scale, that becomes quite transformative, right? If we're all doing something to help one person, then then perhaps we can all be helped. And that feeds in, doesn't it, to the whole idea of why sort of hiding ourselves away from the future is complete is, is not the useful way to, to approach anything because of course we can't get ready to 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 be the person to to help in that way. Right. And I I mean, it sounds counterintuitive, but I promise the confidence and clarity you get from being willing to think about things that other people say are unthinkable, it just changes who you are. And you don't have to like, we don't have to put our head in the sand. We can be excited to do great and important things in the coming years and decades. And, and that's the feeling that I want people to take away from this book. I'm just going to ask you very quickly, very selfishly, because the event has ended. But do you think society just does have a bit of a problem with that? Have we all? Do you think the nat- prevailing narrative is too much about um, the future being an unnerving place, and people talk sort of apocalyptic, and the and the the, the language that society yeah. uses about the future is all wrong? We definitely need more positive visions of the future in in books and movies and and our political life. Um, And so, you know, that's one of the reasons why I end the book with what I think are descriptions of positive transformative change where we've actually done something to really make a difference um, and make a better world. And hopefully people can learn to design their own 
future scenarios that sound like futures we want. We can tell stories about them. We can write graphic novels about them or songs or make art or really infuse our cultural life with not just, you know, dystopian black mirror apocalypses. That, that, is a, that would be an important uh, step forward, I think. Oh, it's absolutely fascinating listening to you. Jeremy says, thanks so much to both of you, Jane. Your optimism and positivity is infectious. The future is exciting. No, near to, no need to fear it. Um, so exciting. Um, so it's so inspiring. Sorry. So um, as I as I began, thank you all very much for coming. And Jane, thank you so much indeed um, for, for giving us this very, very actionable kind of positive view of the future. I've got a lot to go away and think about personally. Thank you. <laughs> thank you very much. This episode of the podcast starred Jane McGonagall and was presented by Hannah McInnes. The show is produced by me and Dana Outcult, and our editor is John Doughty. If you're interested in all things future-facing, check out next week's episode when I'll be in conversation with the speculative author and futurist Ken Liu. Until then, thanks for listening.